This is Dr. Shreya Trivedi. And this is Dr. Manali Nigam, a neurology resident. And this is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we're going to dive into pearls on the geriatric assessment. So when I'm meeting an older adult patient, whether it's in the clinic or in the hospital, I always look at the feet. Toenails are like the A1C of functional independence. When you look at at the feet and you see this long toenail sign, you really get a sense of how someone's been managing over the last few months and whether they're able to do this self-care task or get help for themselves if they can no longer do it. That's Dr. Andrea Schwartz, a geriatrician at the Boston VA. She actually gave me that advice to look at the toenails when we were on rounds together. So we were seeing this 90-year-old whose mobility seemed fine. So we were asking if physical therapy actually needed to see him. So Manali, what do those toenails look like? Sure enough, his toenails were several centimeters in length and clearly hadn't been clipped in months. So we got PT on board. Ah, nice. All right. So thinking about those toenails a bit more, uh, it got me thinking about what are the other high-yield pearls when meeting someone for this first time, especially our geriatric patients? Yeah. So let's dive into those pearls a bit more that we're going to cover. Test yourself after pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, approach to the initial office visit. What high-yield questions should we be asking when we first meet an older patient? Pearl two, moves for mobility. How do you test someone's mobility and assess their fall risk? Pearl three, Cognitive evaluation. What's the main difference to know about the different cognitive assessments? Pearl four, managing medications. What's your approach to de-prescribing medications? And what are some of the meds that we under-prescribe? Pearl five, throwback pearl. How can we de-prescribe PPIs? Okay, Manali, I remember so many times being in clinic, chart reviewing for a new older patient that I was about to see. And it was pretty easy to start feeling overwhelmed just because oftentimes I could tell from the chart, they just had a ton of things going on. Sometimes I wasn't actually sure where to start. Start with what matters to the patient. So we may have our long checklist we want to get through, but making sure that we've really heard why the patient is there and what they are worried about. Uh, can make sure that our care is aligned with their current goals. So what does that goal-setting conversation look like? So what I've learned from my Jerry colleagues over time is opening with something like, Mr. Jones, like, you've been through so much, and I'm curious after all of this, what matters the most to you? Or could you tell me a bit more about what a good day looks like for you can be a really good starting point. So in the outpatient setting, that may mean that an older person is worried about falls or insomnia, where we as the clinicians may want to get through our checklist of preventive health care or um, you know, their blood pressure goals. So if it's someone's goal is to be able to stay at home independently for as long as possible, then we may end up speaking more about their balance problems and less about their specific diabetes numbers. You know, I relate to this so much because I can't tell you how many times I've been in resident clinic and I've thought that the patient is coming in for one thing only to find out that they want to talk about something completely different. For me, being a geriatrician, that's different is I let go of the idea that I'm going to learn the whole story in my initial encounter. 
And I think about what are the next periods of time that I'm going to meet this person? What do I absolutely have to do now and what can wait? That's Dr. Laura Perry, a primary care doctor and geriatrician at the San Francisco VA Community Living Center. Okay, so once we get a sense of the patient's priorities, the geriatricians we spoke with said the next step is to gauge the patient's functional status. You could look at two 80-year-olds that have the exact same problem list, the exact same list of comorbidities, but one of them is living in the community independently, maybe working, driving, you know, involved with family. Uh, and that same list of comorbidities in a different 80-year-old, they might be in a nursing home dependent on others for all of their activities of daily living, like bathing and dressing. And so you can't tell that from that one-liner of an 80-year-old with heart failure and diabetes. And so get in the habit, even with that one-liner of thinking, is this a community-dwelling older person? Is this a person who lives in an institution? And Trying to understand what their baseline is is then critical to figure out what kind of care they might need. And this is where that toenail length can be really helpful because it can serve as a proxy for a patient's functional status. And I learned this as I was researching the episode. Apparently, toenails grow at a rate of two millimeters per month, which is like the thickness of a nickel. It prompts us to ask, why can't this person get their toenails trimmed? What else is going on? Do they have emotional support? Do they have um, cognitive or financial uh, limitation? So when we see that long toenail sign, it means that somebody wasn't able to access the care that they needed for their feet, or maybe they didn't have the cognition, or um, maybe they were depressed and didn't want to attend to, to that need. It actually takes a lot of flexibility, and you can easily think of things that would get in the way of being able to reach, whether it's spinal stenosis or um, vision impairment or dexterity of your hands. The one other thing I'll add to the differential of long toenails is caregiver burnout. I've definitely seen that. You know, I think I fall into that category given that I haven't cut my toenails since my son was (laughs) (laughs) In addition to the toenails, Shreya, what else should we think about when assessing someone's functional status? Yeah. So classically, we think about digging into those activities of daily living. So these are things that I help my one-year-old with, right? Bathing, eating, feeding, walking, toileting. And then as asking also about the instrumental activities of daily living. So these are the things that I like to joke that when you're in the middle of night float or finals may fall by the wayside. Things like laundry, cooking, finances, even something like telephone use and keeping up with your messages. So these are your instrumental activities of daily living, and they include things like transportation, grocery shopping, and medication management. And these are often the first areas where we start to see difficulties with functional status when someone has either cognitive impairment or mobility impairment. So for example, if somebody has mobility impairment and they walk with a walker, they need to get creative about how they're going to do their grocery shopping. Amen to those scooter grocery carts. But you know, when we're asking our patients about their functional status, it can sometimes be a little awkward or even make our patients feel a little self-conscious. So instead of saying something like, Are you still driving or are you still able to dress yourself? Um, Which could be potentially an embarrassing question. I usually start with an open-ended question like, can you walk me through a typical day from the moment you get out of bed in the morning? And often the patient will spontaneously tell me about how they get dressed or their aide helps them get dressed, how they take a shower or their son helps them get in the shower, how they make themselves breakfast or their spouse prepares breakfast for them, or they open the door for their Meals on Wheels delivery. All right. So to recap Pearl 1, some takeaways on best practices for an initial office visit are to ask explicitly what matters most to the patient. 
figure out what they can do. And something I never considered was looking at the patient's toenails. As Dr. Schwartz says, they're the hemoglobin A1C for functional independence. All right, so we get a good history on how much this patient can do and in what care setting. But I often see a lot of people gloss over actually seeing how they move objectively on the physical exam. Our physical exam of the older adult should always include a measure of function and mobility in almost any setting. Because again, it tells us so much about how this older person is doing at baseline and what kind of support they might need. Yep, the support they need, especially to prevent a fall. Okay, so what's the best way to go about assessing that functional status objectively? So in terms of which functional or mobility assessments to use, the best one to use is one that you'll actually use and be able to integrate into your practice. Ouch, I feel like that was a little bit of a burn, (laughs) but it's true. The best functional status is the one that you actually incorporate into your practice. Noted. I can say even for neurologists, sometimes we end up not really examining how a patient walks because it takes time and effort. You know, in even coming from a neurologist, I, I really appreciate that realness. So maybe it'd be good for us to go over what the different objective assessments are so we can tailor which one might be the best to incorporate for a particular patient. Probably the most well-known test that we all learned in med school is the timed get up and go. So as a refresher, here's how the test works. The patient sits in the back of a chair and is asked to walk to a line about 10 feet away on the floor. You time the patient and say go at which point the patient stands up from the chair without using their hands for assistance, walks to the line, turns, walks back to the chair, and sits down again. Right. And so if that patient takes more than 12 seconds from start to finish, that patient is at an increased risk for falls. And honestly, if you don't have 10 feet worth of space or don't have 10 feet measured out, Dr. Schwartz gave us an abbreviated version to assess mobility. So some quick Uh, measures of mobility that you can use uh, in pretty much any setting are the chair stand. And those of you listening can go ahead and try it at home. You just have the patient put their feet flat on the floor. Don't do it if they're on a wheelie chair. It should be a sturdy chair um, with or without arms. Uh, And then you invite the patient to cross their arms over their chest or put their arms straight out front and rise from a chair without using their arms and then sit back down. Some patients will need to use the arms of the chair to assist them, and that's helpful information as well. I love the chair stand because even one chair stand gives you a lot of information. If a patient can't do even one chair stand, they're at high risk for falls, and often those patients are really going to benefit from involvement of physical therapy and potentially occupational therapy. But caveat here is that we can't just use these mobility tests as single predictors of falls. There's so much more that goes into fall risk the patient's comorbidities, and even how safe their home is. Falls are a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in our older population, right up there in the top 10 causes of death, along with heart disease and dementia and cancer. A fall can be that life-changing event that lands someone in the hospital and they never make it back home. And it can lead, obviously, to very severe um, outcomes like brain bleed. And so noticing the slow gait speed and reacting to it before it leads to a devastating fall is one of the best things we can do. Even just watching the patient walk and eyeballing how fast or slow they're going can give us a clue on subtle changes. And that's what happened with Dr. Schwartz. She hadn't seen a patient for over a year because of COVID. And from gait speed alone, she could tell there was a major decline. 
like in many geriatric cases, it was multifactorial. He hadn't been leaving the house as much. Uh, his gym had closed. Uh, the, the partner he used to go walking with uh, was at home caring for a loved one. And so uh, he had had a major decline in his level of activity. Uh, and he was stiffer. Uh, we were able to encourage him to do those chair stands and practice them at home when he was watching TV. Um, and then we were able to do a little more investigation and try to figure out if anything else was wrong. In his case, he had a painful bunion. He needed to see podiatry. He was due for a new pair of shoes so that he could be in a steady, comfortable pair of shoes. And he benefited from the involvement of physical therapy that taught him further exercises that he could do at home, as well as helped install, uh, helped him figure out where to install grab bars and a raised toilet seat. Who would have thought that slow gait speed could crack the case of the bunion? Right. And probably help prevent a fall. We'll link a CDC website called Steady in the show notes. Uh, Steady stops for stopping elderly accidents, death and injury and has, I think, what are some really helpful interventions and research behind some of the things that uh, people can be doing, like balance exercises, using safe furniture and reducing polypharmacy, which is something we're going to delve into later in the episode. Great. So speaking of being steady, let's wrap up this <laughs> pearl on moves for mobility. Yep. So let's recap. I think the big takeaways are remembering that gait speed is the fifth vital sign, especially for our older patients. And so, yes, if you have uh, 10 feet of space, go ahead and use a time get up and go test or just watch the patient walk. Things that are uh, simple, like a chair stand, can also be helpful in gauging balance and coordination. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Okay, so here's where the neurology nerd in me totally comes out. Thinking about thinking. So going back to Pearl One, for many patients and families, what's most important to them is being able to think clearly. Right. So it's good for us to have some tools to assess that objectively and then just going by our gestalt. So many times I've been surprised by how someone could be very facile and completely socially intact and yet do very poorly on the mini cog. Somebody who's having trouble with the clock, may, maybe they're having trouble with their medications or even with driving uh, because those are tasks that take so much executive function. Just as a quick refresher, how is the mini cog properly administered and how do you score it? I like this tool because it's just a three word recall. The validated words I usually use are banana, sunrise, chair. And you have the patient repeat them to you two times to make sure that they've been able to register the words and they can hear them. And then you ask the patient to draw the face of a clock, put in all the numbers, 
and set the time as 10 past 11. And you watch them all, they're drawing the clock. Uh, and then you end with the three word recall and see if they can recall the banana sunrise chairs. And so the Minicog is scored at a five point. So they get one point for each correct word and two points for a normal clock draw. So unfortunately they get zero points if they've drawn a clock incorrectly or did a wrong time. And anything less than five is a reason for us to get a bit more curious. Okay, so what if they miss a word or can't draw 10 past 11? What are the next steps? So the minicog takes usually a minute, very quick, but it gives you an objective finding. First of all, if they can't do the recall task, it tells you that you've got to give them written instructions from your your patient encounter, right? If they only got one out of three recall, they're likely to only remember one out of three words you said. The second thing is it prompts you to do very practical things like look in the ears for wax, I can't tell you how many times, so the enzyme that breaks down cerumen doesn't work as well as we get older. And um, in Dr. Sue Borson's work and others who validated the Minicog, it's just a brief screening tool. So you can't diagnose anything off of it, but it tells you that you need to do a longer test. Right. So that's when we can think about a longer test, like the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, better known as the MOCA. But I think twice on who I actually administer the MOCA to in practice. So the MOCA was designed and validated to detect mild cognitive impairment in a pool of largely college-educated Montreal residents, so bilingual white people. Um, That almost never matches my patient population. A very important caveat indeed. But say you do have a college-educated white person and that patient gets a score less than 26 out of 30, suggesting some cognitive impairment. What are the things we should be thinking through? So some of the things to consider when you get an abnormal cognitive screening test, we've already mentioned hearing. That's an oft overlooked one, but easily modifiable. Another thing to consider is medication effects, in particular medications that may impair cognition, such as sleep aids, opioids, or medications that indirectly may impair cognition, for example, through hypoglycemia. I've definitely seen patients whose diabetes is too tightly controlled given their age and comorbidities and are having frequent episodes of hypoglycemia that can manifest as confusion and impaired cognition. That's a long list of reversible causes of dementia, but there's even more that we learned about for the wards. So checking vitamin B12, thiamine, TSH, syphilis, or if really warranted, head imaging are all part of this workup. Right. Practically speaking, though, I have never had any of those be a culprit for me. Um, But what I have been amazed by time and time again is things like depression playing such a big part into patients' cognition or a side effect of meds. That's a great point. I mean, this is all good stuff in the outpatient setting, but these tests really can't give you an accurate idea when someone's acutely ill. So if we're in the inpatient setting, we need to think about if the patient is in the state of delirium. Right. And the teaching point here is that the hallmark of delirium includes one, disorientation, and two, inattention. But I have seen so many people just asking the patient only if they're oriented to name, place, and time. So ANO times three on a hospitalized patient doesn't give you enough information to determine if they're delirious. You need to add a test of attention, like months of the year backwards or days of the week backwards, which is a little easier. And the UB2, the ultra brief delirium screen, is just orientation today and months of the year backwards. And it's a very sensitive test for delirium. You want to pick up acute brain failure before the patient is agitated and pulling out their lines and quickly intervene to figure out why they're delirious. 
you know, since this interview, I've actually started asking my patients to tell me the days of the week backwards. And it's just made me feel so much more confident about something being off or saying, okay, I think the antibiotics are actually working and the mental status is actually clearing up. You know, I've started asking this too, but to make it more challenging, I start with a day in the middle of the week, like Wednesday, and then ask them to go backwards. Nice. I guess by the time we get the neurologist involved, you you as a neurologist really want to be sure about that cognitive status and challenge them. Always happy for the consult, Shreya. <laughs> yes. All right. So to wrap up Pearl 3, use the mini cog as a brief screening tool for cognitive impairment. You can do a longer test like the MOCA, but in the right patient population, keeping in mind education level and race. If impaired, get a workup for reversible causes, most importantly, the overlooked ones like hearing, depression, or a medication side effect. And if you are in the inpatient setting, testing for cognition and thinking about delirium, we really want to assess the that attention part of it, which is the hallmark of delirium. So things like asking the days of the week backwards or the month backwards uh, can be helpful. You know, one of the biggest tenets with taking care of an older patient is de-prescribing. And yes, in an ideal world, this is probably one of the most important things we can do for our patients. But this is so hard to operationalize sometimes. Agreed 100%. So we asked our geriatricians how they do it. So the first thing I do is a really good medication reconciliation. I find out what they're actually taking. And that often involves collateral information as well, sometimes from the pharmacy, sometimes from a family member or a home health aide, because our list that we have is just like a kitchen sink of garbage a lot of the time. So you've got to start with knowing what the patient's actually taking. And sometimes it's not consistent. I think we've all been there burnt way too often, trusting the med list on the paper, but there's a huge discrepancy between what the patient actually takes and how often. And it makes sense to really dig into this, right? Until we actually learn what the patient actually takes, we can't de-prescribe anything. Then I actually come back to the problem list. Um, This is one of the places where I revisit it. I will take a piece of paper, fold it in half. On the left hand of the side, I write their problem list. And on the right-hand side, I match the medications to each thing. And then I'll find sometimes that I have these leftover medications. And I'm like, so what is this doing? So then I either revise my problem list with things that like I haven't looked into that need to be resolved. And I would say a common example is slow transit constipation. Um, You know, so many people are on Senna every day, why? And the slow transit constipation might be part of like, okay, they've got chronic pain, so they're on an opioid, you know, or it might be that it's the side effect of a bunch of other medications that are on this list. So I put polypharmacy as a problem on their problem list, um, if that's what I'm finding. I so wish our EMR systems carried forward that initial indication, or even with the med list, just grouped all the hypertension meds together or grouped all the diabetes meds together. I think that would just make it so much easier for our overburdened clinician brains to see, oh gosh, this person's on four blood pressure meds and tamsulosin, or geez, they're on three sedative meds um, and just makes the workup and thinking about why this person's, for example, unsteady on their feet a little bit easier. Then I've got the sort of leftovers. And if I really can't find an indication or a problem, then I've got the things that I can be like, why are you taking this? So then there's a sort of a negotiation with the patient. Um, Sometimes it's like the benzodiazepine that they've been using for sleep and they don't want to come off of. So you recognize that like that's not going to be a one-time conversation. You're going to actually have to help them sleep some other way. So then maybe on the problem list comes like, you know, insomnia, if that was it. And you've got to sort of take the time to educate them about 
the non-pharmacologic treatment of insomnia? Um, is there a symptom that's not being addressed that's causing the insomnia? Um, I would say nocturia is the most common one, and you know that or pain is another one. I honestly think geriatricians are the true Sherlock Holmes of medicine. Agreed. They dig into all the clues to crack what's the best medication regimen for each person. At the end of it, I start putting on my like, you know, lean black belt um, of like, you know, can I get more than one like bang for my buck by changing a medication? You know, is there a cheaper alternative? Is there a less frequent alternative? You know, that's when I'm sort of icing the cake is when I'm changing metoprolol tartrate to metoprolol succinate for that once a daily bang for your buck. Another low-hanging fruit are vitamins and supplements. So unless someone truly has a vitamin deficiency, most of the time you can probably knock off the supplement. Yep. Delete, delete, delete. All right, Manali, we've talked a good bit about our approach to deprescribing, but there are a lot of other blind spots with meds, particularly thinking about things that we underprescribe. I think osteoporosis in general is really undertreated. You know, people come in for it's it's so poorly screened for every primary care practice I've been part of. It's never been, you know, DEXAs on the list of one of our quality metrics that we should be doing for everyone. And yet the evidence is so strong for how it changes people's quality of life. If you can prevent one hip fracture, you can really make a huge difference. So thinking about the medications that decrease bone density, especially things like PPIs or other things that interfere with your GI absorption of minerals. And especially in your smokers, like that should be a screen way more than like the lung CT should be a screen that we're still trying to figure out if it's a good idea or not. Ouch. I will think about that burn every time I see a lung CT being prescribed for an older patient who smokes uh, and not a DEXA. Yeah, like get people on their bisphosphonates. Get your chronic pain patients on like a decent scheduled dose of Tylenol. It can help decrease how much opioid and other stuff that they need. Use the medications that don't have a lot of risks, but make a big difference. Speaking again on underprescribing, there's also the direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs. Time and time again, clinicians are hesitant to prescribe them for elderly patients, especially ones who can fall because there's bleeding risk. But on the other hand, we are putting these patients at risk for a debilitating stroke. I don't know. Maybe that's just the neurologist and me talking. No, I agree. You know, I think this comes up often in the risk-benefit conversation. But there's growing evidence uh, that, you know, patients in their 80s do benefit from being on a blood thinner to reduce that stroke risk that can be, as you said, pretty devastating. All right. Glad to know I have some backup here. (laughs) Okay. And I think that the last point we should make uh, about changing around medications in these patients is thinking about who we need to loop in, especially because the reality is that we have such a fragmented healthcare system. I would say maybe the last thing I do is communicate, communicate, communicate. You know, write a good note to whoever's going to take care of the patient next, whether that's a consultant that you're asking for help if you're a primary care doctor or the primary care doctor if you're the hospitalist. Um, you know, make sure that like your note is is like a message to who's coming next to say like, here's why I did what I did. Here's what I think is the next priority and I'm kicking the ball to you. And that's how I do a medication deep prescribing. 
<laughs> okay, much appreciated. So to recap the approach on deprescribing and underprescribing, start with writing down the problem list and matching medications to each problem. That's something that uh, I've now tried to do at least mentally for each patient. Peel off the meds that are left over or have blatant adverse effects. Quick wins are to treat osteoporosis and use Tylenol when in pain. And not to forget to weigh stroke risk versus bleeding risk for DOAX. All right, so we spent quite a bit of time talking about polypharmacy. Uh, and this is, would be a good time to throw back uh, and do some spaced repetition to our episode on PPIs and think about how do we take off PPIs uh, on our patient's med list. I remember that episode. <laughs> there were two big buckets of harms for PPIs, so the malabsorption problems and infection. Uh, nice memory. Okay, so yeah, in the malabsorption bucket, people who are on PPIs for a long time are at increased risk for vitamin B12 deficiency, hypomagnesemia, osteoporosis. Again, a huge problem for patients who are high risk of falls. And then with infection, there's the risk of C. diff. So PPIs suppress gastric acid, which is great for GERD. But the teaching point I learned from the episode was that gastric acid can actually kill C. diff spores. So without those gastric juices, C. diff can wreak havoc. Right. Maybe even before we get to deprescribing, I think one of the big takeaways was thinking about what are best practices when we actually prescribe. So if someone's having symptoms, I only now give a short duration. So two to three weeks of PPI is enough. And then also educating them about lifestyle changes and things like weight loss. And when you do deprescribe and their symptoms come back, we can use rescue meds instead. The simple stuff like aluminum hydroxide, aka Maalox, can neutralize stomach acid because it's a base. Right. And I also love reaching for the H2 blockers, right? The famotidine. I get the patients all psyched up because I tell them it's a different mechanism of action and they get excited too about it. Oh my gosh. You all unlocked so many good strategies during the episode. It's all coming back to me. <laughs> no, same here. Uh, it's, a, it's a humbly how much you forget and need to re-remember. But yeah, so that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team and with your colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you have feedback or questions, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Amy Shaw and Dr. Colleen Christmas. Thank you to Max Had for the audio editing and Dr. Michelle Lowe for the accompanying infographic. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. All right, that's a wrap. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 